Today's episode is brought to you in part by Logos. Logos combines digital books with intelligent software to help you study the Bible deeply. Do word studies with one click, search for virtually anything in your Bible, and enjoy dozens of features that help you see more in Scripture. Right now, you can find my book, Virtuous Persuasion, A Theology of Christian Mission, as well as get a listener discount on Logos by visiting logos.com slash mniebauer. That's logos.com slash mniebauer. Is there a difference between committing murder, fighting in a war, or harming someone in self-defense? Why does Jesus equate hatred with murder? How do I love my enemies when I don't seem to have any enemies? Welcome to This We Believe, the podcast where we explain the essential texts of the Christian faith. My name is Dr. Michael Niebauer. Today we're examining the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. To begin, we have to note that this commandment does not refer to every act of killing. There are clearly times in which God allows killing to take place. Shortly after the commandments are given, God will permit the Israelites to go to war. For this reason, Christians have often made the distinction between killing and murder. What types of killing are not considered murder? First, killing is permitted for the protection of others. If someone is attacking my friend, I am permitted to harm that attacker if it means the protection of my friend. Out of the love that I have for my neighbor, I may prevent their harm by restraining an assailant, even if this means the use of violence. We may notice here that this use of force requires that Christians put their own lives on the line for the protection of others. In order to keep a loved one from harm, Christians are called to put themselves in harm's way. This permission to use force for the protection of others out of love is extended to rulers of communities and nations. In order to preserve peace, God grants to rulers a kind of temporary authority to restrain evil through punishment. Peace is kept in part through the use and threat of force both to preserve internal peace through police officers and to preserve peace from external threats through the use of military force. The idea behind this is that because the world is still evil and broken, some use of force is necessary in order to keep this evil from overtaking the world and becoming pervasive. Without some restraint on evil, there will be chaos and anarchy. Examples of this kind of chaos are numerous today in what political scientists call failed states, places that have devolved into chaos with the loss of functioning governments. So God enables a kind of temporary use of force by rulers, but this authority is limited. Christians have viewed the commandment against murder as limiting the ways in which rulers can conduct war and policing. Excessive use of force by police crosses over from lawful killing to immoral murder. Militaries that intentionally target civilians are engaged in murder, not war. But how does this commandment apply to individuals? The commandment not to commit murder is the command by God not to end another person's life in an unlawful way. 
God is the source of life, and in God's hands lies the power to grant life and to take away life. To commit murder is to take on ourselves the responsibility of life and death. It is human beings' attempt to become like God, to take the power of life upon themselves. Murder is often done out of anger and vengeance. We desire the ending of another person's existence in retribution for the ways in which they have harmed us. Murder is also done when the existence of another person presents our lives with too many challenges. Another person makes our life difficult, so we seek to end their existence. This most often occurs with those persons who are the most burdensome to ourselves and society. So the burdens of the unborn and the elderly are eliminated through abortion and euthanasia. This also happens when one becomes bothered by their own existence and commits suicide, which is a form of self-murder for those who knowingly perform it. In all of these ways, one takes matters of life and death into their own hands and rejects God as the source of life. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus extends the meaning of this commandment when he states that anyone who has hatred for another person has committed murder in their hearts. When we desire harm to come upon others, when we speak poorly of others out of our dislike, when we fantasize about telling someone else off, we are murdering them in our hearts. Why is this so? Well, to murder someone is to end their existence. Out of hatred or inconvenience, we get rid of someone else. Well, when we hate someone else, we in essence desire for them to go away or to cease to exist. When we imagine harm coming to another person, we are hoping that they will have less existence. When we fantasize about telling someone off, we are hoping that their status as human beings is diminished and shrunk. We are really desiring the diminishment or ending of another person's existence, which is murder. When we think in these terms, it is quite easy to violate this commandment in our contemporary society. When someone offends us or bothers us, we can simply cut them off from our lives by not answering their texts or finding different friends. We are also tempted to hate people that we have never met, as many of us fantasize about telling off politicians or public figures that we despise. Our response when we are hurt or offended is to try to eliminate that person from our lives. Now, Jesus actually commands us to do something that is quite different and difficult. Rather than hate our enemies, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those that bother us. This requires that we forgive other people when they intentionally or unintentionally harm us. When we forgive someone, we swallow up that pain and harm and give up the right to continually bring up past grievances in our mind. We give up the right to wish for their harm or their demise. This, of course, can be quite difficult. But as Christians, we first acknowledge our own sin in the ways it has damaged our relationship with God. And here we recall that God has taken the initiative to forgive us by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins.
Furthermore, this call to love our enemies is a call for us not to ignore those who are different from us or who bother us. It might be hard for many of us today to think of people that we would classify as our enemies. We live in a society which makes it very easy for us to curate our friends. We can simply ignore or isolate those whom we don't want to be around. In this case, it's probably better for us to think of our enemies as those people whom we actively ignore, or those people that we silently judge as they pass by. Our calling to love our enemies means having an openness to these persons, an openness to befriend, love, and care for them. The church is supposed to be a place in which those from vastly different backgrounds and with vastly different personalities can come together to form a community simply through the fact that they have Jesus in common. Sadly, many churches are homogenous, more like cliques than communities. For this to change requires a deep-seated change of heart. It requires Christians to look up and around, to see those who are ignored and those who are maligned. It requires Christians to pray for these people, to seek a vision of those people coming to Christ and joining his church. And it requires Christians to act out of love in response to these prayers in this vision. I'd like to thank you for joining me today on This We Believe. If you have enjoyed this episode, I'd ask that you tell one other friend about us. This will go a long way in helping us reach others. If you'd like to connect further, please visit our Facebook page at This We Believe Podcast, our Twitter at we underscore believe underscore pod, or our email at thiswebelievepodcast at gmail.com. Take care and God bless. <music>